Hi everyone! Welcome back to Resilient Together Season 2. I hope you all have been well. Uh, it's certainly been a very turbulent past few months and I hope you all are you know, recuperating and rising again from the impacts of COVID-19 and continue to be safe and healthy. My name is Maisara and I will be hosting this episode today. We thought of starting Season 2 with a topic that is urgent and that will touch all of our lives. And this is the topic of climate change. Climate change is a term that we often hear these days. Dalam bahasa Melayu, climate change dikenali sebagai perubahan iklim ataupun krisis iklim. So in today's episode, we will be learning about climate change. The term COP26 is something that we hear a lot in the past month. We'll also learn about how climate change affects us differently and what can we do in our own capacity to make a change uh, in pursuit of saving our humanity against this climate crisis. So for this episode, I'm speaking to Evelyn Tay. She is a scientist, an environmentalist, an urbanist, and also currently a policy analyst. But I, I won't talk further. I'll let her introduce herself. So hi, Evelyn. Uh, how are you? Hi, Masara. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for the brief introduction earlier. And yeah, to many people, it's quite confusing when you start with scientists and then, you know, environmentalists and urbanists. But It is what it is. Um, <laughs> I started as a marine biologist and then I moved on to being an environmental management. Um, well, I took a degree in environmental management and then I did uh, urban studies. So today I mixed them all up. Uh, it's great. So I'm an environmental and urban policy researcher and I focus on matters relating to climate change in Malaysia and regionally. I wow. also volunteer uh, Jaringan Ecology dan Iklim, uh, also called as JEDI. Jedi, so, it's a cool name. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Jedi is a Penang-based civil society organization, and mm. we advocate the rights of people to a safe, uh, healthy, sustainable environment. So by promoting climate change awareness and environmental protection. And I may add also Jedi is a small grants program award recipient. Okay, it's a wow. grant given by the Global Environment Facility, GEF, and mm. UNDP. So this grant is for documentation of sustainable livelihood and the culture of uh, coastal fishermen community at the south of Penang Island. Lastly, JEDA is also a partner of Gabungan Darurat Iklim Malaysia, mm-hmm. which is formed early this year. So before before we go into that, um, maybe we can sort of uh, understand like where did your interest in the environments begin? Uh, thanks for that question. I think it all began when uh, I took my bachelor's degree in marine biology in University of Malaysia, Trungganu. Uh, it's a place where, I mean, I, I'm from Penang and mm-hmm. I, most, I mostly live in the city. So being in Trungganu was a <laughs> cultural shock to me, to say the least. <laughs> It's still the same country. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, being young and not exactly very exposed, um, mm-hmm. it became a place that I learned so much, not just about the environment, but about myself. And also the marine biology course is something that I never knew I needed. Mm-hmm. So when I went there and I studied um, about, you know, the biology of the marine life, um, well, I focused on coral. So I went diving and it's just doing things out of my comfort zone and really be one with nature. So Chungkanu mm-hmm. is quite, well, Well, compared to Penang, there isn't a lot of things for, you know, youth to yeah. do in Trungganu. So, Penang is quite urban, right? That's right. You can you can go to the malls, you can spend time with friends at the cafe and all that. Mm. But not in Trungganu. So, mm. we spend time in nature instead. 
and that's where the love of nature came about and you know you foster that kind of relationship to appreciate the natural surrounding around you and also the role that the natural surrounding play in everyday mm. life yeah mm-hmm. i guess that's how it started Thanks for sharing that. That's an amazing start to your flourishing career now. <laughs> uh, just going back to the Gabungan Darurat Iklim, is it is it a civil society association as well? Uh, Gabungan Darurat Iklim Malaysia is a loose coalition. Uh, it's not really an organization uh, in, in the traditional sense. It's basically a group of civil society organizations and individuals um, coming together um, because they're driven by the need to address Malaysia's response to the global mm. climate emergency through urgent and concerted action. So everybody brings something to the table. So mm. as a coalition, GDIM aims to advocate for the Malaysian government mm. and all sectors to acknowledge that there is a climate crisis and yep. declare a climate emergency to keep, to keep the global warming to below 2 Celsius with mm. efforts to contain it within 1.5 Celsius, which is yep. the Paris Agreement target. When, when did it start? Gabungan Darurat Iklim, yeah. Yeah, uh, Gabungan Darurat Iklim started sometime early this year. Mm, so so it's had, quite recent. Mm, it is very recent. And uh, we had a big meeting, um, I think sometime in April or May, I'm not too sure. Mm. Uh, but we were planning about these things for some time now. Mm-hmm. And some of our coalition members, uh, and I can't mention all here because uh, it's quite a long list. Yeah, include, um, you know, Jedi of course. Yes, and then Jedi. Greenpeace, um, Kami. Um, Kami, yeah. Yeah, we also have five arts. Uh, River three. Uh, we have uh, a representative from Transit Malaysia. Yeah, and a few others that have joined us. So um, we are getting more and more um, prominent in a sense. We're also pushing out um, education webinars. Yeah, because we want to empower uh, Malaysians with knowledge mm-hmm. to face climate change more competently and take up ecological and resilient practices in all aspects of their lives. And we also want to emphasize um, the principle of climate justice. Mm, yeah, climate justice. I think that's the idea where climate change does not affect everyone the same. So meaning people don't experience the impact of climate change uh, equitably, meaning people with poorer socioeconomic background will, you know, will face the worst, um, the most adverse impacts of climate change. Um, but going back to, you know, Jedi and Gabungan Darurat Iklim, I think these initiatives and these movements are important and very much needed. Uh, seeing how, you know, in the past year we've reacted or res- in respond to COVID-19 and, you know, there's this sense of urgency among the Malaysian rakyat to give a helping hand to, to their neighbours and the people around them. Even though it was just a temporary, you know, measure, but I think that's how, um, that's one way we build resilience. Going back to the topic at hand, um, what is climate change? Uh, such a huge topic to dissect in one podcast. But Evelyn, if you can tell us, you know, in, in your own words, what is climate change? Thanks. Um, I guess for grounding listeners, um, how I would describe climate change is, in very simple terms, it is an existential threat that a lot of people do not yet realize. Um, it sounds very 
doomsday yeah <laughs> i was about to say yes <laughs> don't lose but, hope yet lah don't don't yeah, shut off the podcast right. yet lah <laughs> <laughs> okay that's it for today guys <laughs> but yeah we do have hope because i think when i was let's say for example when i was still doing my bachelor's in marine biology climate change wasn't a thing yet but you know fast forward a few decades um is really picking up steam and it's really taking on you know global main headlines and that to me alone is encouraging in sense that uh, more and more youth are picking up that mental taking up platform and space to demand for climate action and climate justice so mm-hmm. i guess if i were to um, ground the audience what what we think about when we talk about climate change Um, I would like to take the opportunity to just discuss a little bit about how this whole discussion of climate change began, right? Mm. And I would like to walk us through this um, starting from COP26, which is the very hot current issue right now. Yeah, it's going on right now as we speak. As we speak. (laughs) And I'll just provide a very condensed view of the essential information that we need to know. Mm-hmm. So, well, the basic science part is this, right? Climate change is a change in weather patterns and in oceans, land surfaces and all that over the scale of decades or longer. If you're looking at day-to-day temperature change or rainfall, and people say that, uh, what, what's the difference between perubahan iklim and perubahan cuaca? Cuaca is a very short temporal scale when you look at it, maybe by several weeks or several years. Mm-hmm. But climate change is something that happens a lot longer. And if you, you draft the graph to maybe extend towards the 1800s, the global temperature has been increasing. So how is climate change, uh, what is climate change being caused by, right? Yeah. So it's greenhouse gas, right? Mm. It accumulates in the atmosphere and it traps the sun's heat, just like a greenhouse. So it causes the planet temperatures to rise. And when the planet's temperature rise, we know that it causes the, temp- the, the weather changes. And how does this GHG emission came about? It's from burning fossil fuels. Right. Particularly, um, it, it emits carbon dioxide. So the world is now 1.2 Celsius warmer than it was in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has risen by 50%. Mm. So in our latest IPCC report, it reinforces the fact that climate change that we are experiencing today is induced by human activities. So um, on the history part, we, we must go back to how it all began. It began during the Industrial Revolution on, in the 18th century, where a massive amount of carbon dioxide from fossil fuel accumulated in the atmosphere, which leads to the problem that we face today. So it didn't just happen in the 1990s. It happened all the way back then. Mm-hmm. So we must also know that there is such thing called the carbon budget in the atmosphere. And this carbon budget is something that we must not overspend if we want to keep at a safe global temperature, which is, again, is a 1.5 Celsius Mm. increase. And due to the historical emissions, um, this carbon dioxide actually stays in the atmosphere for many, many years. We're talking about hundreds Mm. of years to a millennia. So say, for example, whatever that is being emitted in the 18th century actually is still there out in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So the world recognizes that we need to reduce greenhouse gas. Um, and then they came together and formed the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework of Convention on mm-hmm. Climate Change. 
That was in the 1990s, right? Yeah, 1992. Yeah. And the Conference of Parties, which is shortened to COP. So, so this COP is under the UNFCCC convention and they are the supreme decision-making body of the convention. So mm. COP1, the first COP was held in Berlin in 1995. Mm. And then we have the Kyoto Protocol in 1997 mm. where Annex 1 countries, which are also the largest historical emitters, yep. um, are required to cut their emissions to overall um, at least 5% below 1990 levels between 2008 and 2012. So that's a target for these yeah. countries to cut. Mm -hmm. But fast forward in 2015, we have the big, much publicized Paris Agreement, which is COP21. COP21 yeah. yeah. So instead of just the annex one countries to make the reductions, it now requires every country um, that are party to the convention to reduce their emissions, regardless of how much they have emitted historically. Mm -hmm. And today we have COP26 in Glasgow. So to finalize mm. some of this Paris work program. Mm, it's quite a process, is it? Um, so COP26 is happening currently from the 31st of October until 12th of November. Thank you, Evelyn, for giving us the rundown of COP, uh, you know, how it came about uh, historically. And also earlier on, you made the, you know, you defined climate change and made an important distinction between climate and weather, which I think everybody has to know. Going back to all the talk about COP26, um, there's this narrative going on saying that COP26 will be the last, the best last chance for the world to contain um, climate change. It seems that, you know, we, we don't really have very good prospects considering, you know, a lot of countries are still struggling to limit their emissions. But for you, Evelyn, what's your take on this? Thanks. Um, I think to the question of whether the COP26 is the world's last best last chance to get uh, the runway climate under control, I, I think we do hear that rhetoric a lot um, mm. when it comes around COP season. Yeah, Everyone's very hopeful that when climate leaders around the world gather and somehow at the end of two weeks, they'll come up with this magic um i don't know agreement that will suddenly get the world to a better place i mean let's not kid ourselves it's already cop 26 yeah, and yeah. you know as we know ipcc report has said that you know emissions has not gone down even the current um recently released report um which is the emissions gap report by the unit also said the same thing so as you said, rightly so, the temperature target of Paris Agreement is 1.5 C and at worst 2 degrees. However, the IPCC report said that there is no drastic reduction of GHG, um, greenhouse gas emission, and we are on our way to a 2.7 by the end of this century. Mm, 2.73, basically 3 degrees, almost, almost yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, and the current committed pledges by the governments around the world are not enough to keep within the safe limits of 1.5C. I think listeners might be wondering, you know, why, why is there this, you know, specific figure, 1.5 degree change, you know, what does it entail? It's like the best case scenario for, for the Earth? Yeah, I think that's what it really is in simple terms. So the thing about carbon emissions and the way the world system works is that you can't exactly halt everything to a, 
to a screeching halt, right? Mm. Like a car, you can't pull the brakes and it stops. There mm. is a momentum where it, it needs to taper off. And this is the thing where 1.5 is where the world still have that little window that to keep to that increase of level, uh, temperature level before it goes down the slippery slope. Kaboom bomb. <laughs> like literally no. your, your brakes aren't working anymore. So. <laughs> no, they, they do have a projections, projections made for different scenarios, like mm-hmm. 1.5 increase, 2, 2 degrees increase, and 3. But these scenario um, projections are very complicated because it's not just talking about, it talks about the world systems, uh, what the government has pledged, uh, what if there is a advancement of technology or mm. there's lack of deforestation. So there's a lot of variables put into it. So 1.5C is sort of like the last call that we can sort of taper off by that kind of increase. Mm. After that, it just gets worse. And also it means that the reduction, the greenhouse gas reduction that we need to make is a lot larger. And also we are not even talking about the ripple effect, the feedback loop of what a a high temperature would cause, right? Uh, So we are all hoping that, a lot of people are hoping that by planting trees, we are able to suck out all the the atmosphere. It seems simple enough, but actually it doesn't work the same way. Carbon dioxide is, as I said before, is due to burning of fossil fuel. So that fossil fuel belongs to a different carbon cycle. It's mm-hmm. a geological carbon cycle, mm-hmm. which is you so we need to take it into consideration the time frame. It's therefore millions of years. And then yeah. we're relying on the biological carbon cycle, which are the trees, the soil, to suck them all up. Mm-hmm. So basically, we're trying to how to say, um, cool down a bowl of soup mm-hmm. with a teaspoon of ice. Oh goodness. So the science doesn't really add up if you look into it. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of literature questioning that, yeah, it's good to conserve the habitat, the forest, uh, restore them. They are good for overall biodiversity and the weather mm-hmm. um, regulation and also the carbon sequestration mm-hmm. potential that it has. But a lot of times these are being used as, uh, okay, we can buy up forests and trees so that we can offset our continued operation of mm-hmm. you know, emitting. The real solution is to cut carbon at the source. So mm-hmm. if your factory is emitting a lot of carbon or using a lot of electricity, you need to fix that, mm-hmm. not look for forests to buy up. And Yeah, yeah. yeah. There is a, is a whole conversation, a whole debate about you know, the concept of net zero and whether we can ever achieve that just by planting another tree in another country so that you can continue your emissions. Let's talk about loss and damage um, in the context of climate change. So why is this the, um, the main issue in this COP26 climate negotiation? What does that mean, loss and damage? So basically, um, there are severe climate change impacts that's already happening right now uh, that may not be easy or possible to adapt to. So this is called the limits to adaptation because adaptation efforts will only provide limited help. It's mm-hmm. So in cases like this, for example, when communities lose their crops or homes or lands because of climate change, 
This is called climate-induced loss and damage or loss on damage for short. So these losses can be economic and non-economic. Mm-hmm. With that being said, you know, let's let's contextualize in, in Malaysia. Majority of Malaysians, right, we, we live in cities. Uh, I think about 70% of us. And I think this will increase up to 18%, 80% by, I think I'm not mistaken, 2030. With, you know, with the whole, you know, majority of populace concentrated in a city. And cities are the biggest emitters of pollution uh, emissions. I guess the first question is like, you know, if you were to demonstrate climate change effects in an urban context, what does it look like? I think it's a matter of recognizing that it is climate change. I think for instance, you know, we've seen in KL itself, you know, every evening there's a downpour and this downpour can lead to flash floods because it goes on for hours, like two, three hours. And you know, like I think as a normal Malaysian, we just assume that, okay, it's just another day, it's going to rain, you know, it's just the weather, maybe it's the monsoon. Yeah, I totally agree with you that, you know, the, the impact of climate change sometimes is so insidious. It's happening, but yet you don't see it because these are what we call the slow onset events, right? Um, and okay, there are two types, if I would put it more, more generally, of what climate in- impacts are. So you have the slow onset events and we have the extreme events. So slow onset events are like land desertification, like, you know, land going really bone dry. And then we have sea level rise. And then we have increasing temperature, land and forest degradation, ocean acidification, biodiversity loss and all that. Those are the things that we don't immediately see um, in our daily life that we notice. Then we have the extreme events, which are the storm surges, drought, heat wave, flood, and cyclone. The thing about our tropical countries is that we experience flood all the time. To an extent, we sort of accept it as a normal uh, occurrence, but uh, we don't necessarily recognize that that it has increased in terms of frequency or intensity, and then we just cope with it. And also because... I would say that the the issue and conversation about climate change in Malaysia is still not mainstream. So people don't necessarily connect the dots. So urban areas will be affected by the combination of these events. So the first most tangible one is flood, as you mentioned. And I can't help but to think the recent um, very viral video that went on, the Sungai Basito, and there's like, hundreds if not thousands mm. of cars back to back yeah. bumper to bumper that's and i think like for four hours mm-hmm. you may have more incidences like that um so flash floods are floods that happen in a very short amount of time the water just increases like in less than an hour and this is due to the lack of permeable surfaces in most urbanized areas we concretize most of the things uh surface possible and we there's um we also clear a lot of our water catchment and forested areas, which could otherwise help absorb those rainwater runoff. And then there's also the clogging of drainage due to solid waste that could have helped with draining out the water more effectively. These are just a few factors. And it's not hard to imagine that, you know, highways like LDP near IOI Puchong Mall would turn into a big river during mm. a heavy downpour yeah. or low-lying areas in many parts of the city will be submerged in water. So homes and other properties, even public properties like roads, will be damaged and there will be there might even be loss of lives or spread of waterborne diseases. 
And I guess the second um, tangible effect of climate change in the city that we should recognize is heat wave. Due to the heat island effect caused by the way the, the city is built to trap heat with very limited green spaces or urban trees to absorb the heat. So electricity bills will rise for those who need to turn on the AC. And for those who don't have the AC, um, air condition, it's a health hazard. It could lead to heart, uh, heat stroke if precautions to stay cool and hydrated is not taken. So the heat wave could also, um, so again, this is like climate change ripple effects, right? Heat wave could yeah. also lead to drought and therefore water shortage, which affect every single person. And it's something that I know Salangorians are very afraid of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and even industry and businesses. So prolonged, prolonged drought could also cause wildfire due to the dry and mm -hmm. hot weather. And the fire will worsen the air quality because of the soot particles. Yeah. And this, yeah, these microscopic particles can penetrate deep into the lungs and it causes inflammation, difficulty in breathing, and also trigger asthma yeah. attacks. Or worst case scenario, lung cancer, maybe. Yeah, yeah in the long run, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, while, while these climate impacts affects everyone, it doesn't affect everyone equally because there are some mm. people who are more vulnerable than others. So for example, the elderly, people with disabilities and children are more vulnerable than the average able-bodied person. And on the other hand, women are also more vulnerable in a rural context, especially as they are often responsible for gathering and producing food, collecting water and sourcing for fuel. So mm -hmm. women are more exposed to hazards with fewer options to, to avoid all the resources such as, such as like income, um, assets or education to cope with these climate impacts. Yeah, certainly. Um, we don't necessarily look at climate impacts with a gender lens. Um, it's not the first thing in our minds. And as you've rightly said about uh, the social inequalities that affect the people with disabilities, the elderly, more unfavorably, I think, um, due to the lack of proper infrastructure. Um, I think that's a very important thing to be aware of when it comes to climate change. And I suppose when, you know, when we're in a place of privilege or when we are not at the front lines of where the signs of climate change are clearly are, like by the seaside or, you know, Sawapadi um, or, you know, agricultural lands, occupations that require you to be more sensitive to the environments, it's harder to empathize. It's almost coming to the end of the session, but before we get there, my next question is, where is Malaysia in terms of its level of preparedness um, in, in mitigating climate change? Um, if we were to consider COVID-19 as a symptom of uh, climate change and seeing how we responded to it with much difficulty, it may just be a teaching moment for Malaysia to prepare better. But you know, are, we, are we even prepared um, in the next five to ten years with future uncertainties? It's, it's a very difficult question, but I think it's something that everybody has to understand. Yeah, COVID-19 really reveals a lot of the, the gaps that we need to fill, right, in our country and the inequalities that is embedded in the society. It becomes really front and center, especially when we are stuck at home and we do have time to start thinking and mulling over these very important issues. Well, I, I would begin by saying that, you know, I, 
I don't really know where Malaysia is when it comes to adapting to climate change, but there are several studies that attempts to do that. So there was this one that I came across. Um, it's called the Inform Risk Index, which measures the risk of humanitarian crisis and disasters in about 190 countries. So some of the crisis type that it took into consideration are food security, uh, drought, conflict, epidemic, flood, cyclone, and even political and economic crisis. So, and, and Malaysia is one of those countries that it assessed and it found out that Malaysia's overall risk index was in the 3.2 in 2019, but it rose slightly to 3.3 in 2020. However, I guess uh, the reliability index, which they also presented of this assessment for Malaysia is 4.7, meaning this 3.3 index is about 50-50 reliable that. So 3.3 is sort of like, kind of on the half low of mm -hmm. the spectrum. So 10 being very vulnerable. Okay. So, yeah, so there's that. And then another way of understanding whether we are ready to face these impacts is through a systemic understanding of risk and resilience. Mm -hmm. So three main factors that are interlinked in this feedback loop includes environmental and climate trends, because we know that climate impacts have ripple effects and outcomes. And then you have number two, the governance and decision-making, such as how the city is planned, what adaptation or mitigation actions are put in place, or the policies or incentives to make those change happen. And then thirdly, we have social economic processes, such as population growth, economic development, and distribution. So when you have all these three factors laid out, then we can say with a level of reliability, if I would put it that way, whether we are ready or not to face climate impacts. So we need to be also cognizant of the fact that this assessment must be context and spatial specific, mm. such as say climate adaptation capacity in Petaling Jaya is different from Alostar, for example. So we shouldn't you know, apply a very blanket um, assessment on this. Mm, yeah. However, I, I have not yet come across such comprehensive articulation of climate adaptation plans of that scale in Malaysia, be it at federal, state or local government level. Mostly I see what I see are climate mitigation plans and low carbon development plans. So those are to reduce emissions, not to adapt to climate change. So I don't, I don't find pleasure in saying this, but I'm afraid we're not ready to face climate change at this point especially with the slow onset events that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So we might be better equipped at handling extreme weather events. Like you see this flood reliefs that uh, is being mobilized, not just by uh, the government sector, but also by public, you know, people were yeah, donating yeah. a lot of things, people going Grass down roots. the ground. Mm -hmm. That's right. But that's, that's for the uh, extreme weather events, but not so much for you no know, slow on onsets. Mm -hmm. So we do have a lot of room to lower our disaster risk. Mm, so, so you're saying that at an institutional level, we need a framework, a climate change adaptation framework that is coherent and that can be uh, implemented. But so far, we don't have that, do we? Not at this point, not an mm -hmm. official plan. So I think the, the ministry is, uh, has embarked on this process to put them together. But 
it will take probably a couple of years before we see the final plan for it. And even with that voluminous plan that we may have, we need to see how it's being implemented on the ground as well. That's the, you know, um, the ultimate measure of how effective it is. So as of now, we see a lot of people quoting SDG principles here and there, especially in development plans. Mm -hmm. And I think when people are thinking, oh, that is how Malaysia is sort of prepping itself for climate change, I I don't think that counts at all. Mm -hmm. So again, we need to see real plan, which is accessible and communicated to all uh, layers of society. Mm -hmm. Something that even our grandparents or children can understand. Mm. a real financial commitment and technical capacity to implement those necessary adaptation plans urgently. Mm, yeah, for sure. I mean, climate change is life-threatening. And as you know, as we've seen from this conversation today, we know that climate change can you know, aggravate one issue and that issue can lead to another issue. So it's kind of like a very vicious cycle and we need to act fast. And, you know, if, if we talk about an adaptation plan that would take another two or three years to be seen, what, what are we doing in the meantime to better prepare and, you know, self-preserve? Also, just by looking at COVID-19 in the past two years, um, you know, it came without any warning. And certainly with future climate impacts, we have to be better prepared. So we've come to the end of this episode and thank you so much listeners for tuning in until the end. I hope you've learned something new and I hope this episode has been beneficial for you. And thank you so much, Evelyn, for you know spending your precious time educating all of us about climate change and what it means for us. Before we all leave, um, Evelyn, what's your last leaving message for all of us here, um, especially for those who are just starting to understand climate change? and for individuals and communities who want to make a difference in their own way? I guess um, there are a few things I would say. Number one is to be very mindful of the current uh, and future design of the city that you're in, first and foremost, something that you can already see. And recognize whether it is done in such a way that locks us in in a carbon-intensive future. For example, if your city if you need to move around your city only with cars, that means you're kind of locked in to continue using cars and there's no infrastructure made available for active mobility, which have lower carbon footprint or a good public transportation. So start recognizing all these patterns of the city that locks us in. And also how adaptive our city is in terms of whether we have good drainage, very simply, and then how many urban trees can you spot in your street, you know, to reduce urban heat effect and all that. Mm -hmm. So, and then I guess the popular message is that as individual, we need to change our lifestyle. So to reduce our environmental carbon footprint through our consumption, through the way we move. But I guess the more impactful method is, at least in Malaysia, um, it's for the ordinary citizens to hold their local leaders accountable on what they do about climate crisis. People should really feel empowered um, and know that they have the right to demand a change on the ground. Mm. Um, We can pressure decision makers to take climate change more seriously. And we just don't see that kind of momentum today among Malaysians in general. Mm. So we can relate that back to lack of awareness or just apathy because people are just trying to make ends meet Mm. or they're just comfortable with the way things are. 
But for those of us who understand the seriousness of climate change and the gravity of this long-term planetary crisis, we do have the onus of responsibility to be a more active citizen in influencing policy and decision-making. And there are many public platforms of engagement for us to do that, you know, and, and people should just explore. And if they don't know where to start, they, they could get in touch with local NGOs that are already doing this and get involved and get updated, you know, to champion and, and lead the cause with them to hold the government accountable and also their community accountable as well, right? And finally, I would say, uh, read, read and read. We need to be open to unlearn and relearn what we know about the world we live in. There's no shortcut to this, I would say. We must fill ourselves with information about the climate and current world news and know what's going on. We must be also open to weighing in on new information that may challenge our belief and prior mm. assumptions. I mean, this is a knowledge economy these days. Information is open. Um, there's no excuse for one to not know what's going on. So, and, and shape that kind of critical thinking mm-hmm. because without it, we, we will fall for anything that's suggested as solutions to climate change. As they say, knowledge is power.